will also, for the first time in a long time, begin to restore fairness to the tax code, begin to restore fairness by making the largest corporate nations and the largest corporations in America pay their fair share without any any new taxes on people making under $400,000 a year. Welcome to 10 Minutes on Democracy. That clip was from a speech from President Biden about the recent Schumer-Mansion deal leading to the Inflation Reduction Act. I'm Jason Franklin, Senior Advisor at One for Democracy, and today is Tuesday, August 2nd. Let's start off looking at some of the federal legislation moving through Congress, one of the fundamental activities of our democratic process. As Biden's speech reflected, one of the constant tensions in American politics and American democracy has been how our country decides on the question of the distribution of wealth. Who is responsible for paying for the activities of our shared governance? Manchin is calling this new piece of legislation that he negotiated in secret with Majority Leader Schumer the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. In the one-page summary of the agreement that was sent out by Manchin's office, they note that they're aiming to raise $739 billion of revenue over 10 years by raising the corporate minimum tax to 15%, reforming prescription drug pricing and allowing Medicare to negotiate drug prices, increasing IRS tax enforcement, and closing the carried interest loophole and taxing it as income. These are among the most progressive changes to the tax code for any major bill in recent memory and demonstrate a really stark progressive stance in answering the question of who should pay. Basically, they're putting the primary burden of paying for this big bill on wealthy families and corporations. And what will that pay for? Well, there's $433 billion of investment included in this bill. It includes $369 billion for climate and energy changes and $64 billion to extend the Affordable Care Act for three more years. The balance of that is going to be invested in $300 billion to pay down the deficit. Now, Democrats are arguing that that will reduce inflation, lower energy costs, increase clean energy preparation, allowing Medicare to negotiate drug prices, um, lower ACA premiums, a lot of goals that Biden has campaigned on, and a really stark shift from a couple of weeks ago where it looked like so many elements of Biden's domestic agenda was stalling, but a reminder that the process of democracy is up and down, and every major bill often, people will say, every major bill dies at least three or four times before it gets passed. You don't know if something is over until a session comes to the end, and even then it can come back in the next session. Manchin's announcement with Schumer of this new bill came just hours after Democrats, along with some Republicans supporting, pushed through the $282 billion bill for the U.S. domestic semiconductor manufacturing industry. mentioned this last week, the CHIPS bill. McConnell, the Republican minority leader, had actually threatened to sink that bill if Democrats attempted to push through a reconciliation package. But the bill moved forward after Manchin said he wouldn't support a passage. And then just hours afterwards, Manchin pivoted and said, oh, look, surprise, I will support this different package instead. A real example of like political movering and the quiet behind the scenes work of democracy. It's not gotten much attention publicly so far about how that has played out. Also worth noting, due to its potential impacts on our democracy, I mentioned this before, the On July 20th, Republican Senator Susan Collins and Manchin jointly introduced Senate Bill 4573. This was the 
long-awaited and debated proposal to reform the very antiquated Electoral Count Act. If this can get passed, it would bolster the process of certifying the presidential election and hopefully avoid efforts that proponents of the big lie have been pushing around ways to undermine voting and you know, some of what Trump attempted leading up to January 6th would not be possible if we can update and reform the Electoral Count Act. The Senate Rules Committee is actually holding its first hearing on this tomorrow. So we'll start seeing a focus and conversation around the Electoral Count Act in the coming weeks as that moves forward. Also at the federal level, another piece related to how our elections went over in 2020 in particular is that the Postal Service has announced that they are creating a new division to handle election mail and make sure they can deliver mail-in ballots in advance of the midterm elections this November. There was a lot of concern, as you can, many of us will remember, in the last election, Trump had appointed a very polarizing head of the Postal Service and worries that, especially because of COVID, where mail-in ballots were more critical, that they were going to be delayed and targeted where the delays would happen in a way to undermine the election process. The Postal Service has said that 97.9, so almost 98% of ballots, were delivered to election officials within three days. But they're creating this division to be able to kind of ensure that election ballots will move in every community. It's also worth noting 97.9 is not 100. And in so many of these close elections, that 2% margin, if it were to be partisanly implemented of who got delayed and who didn't, could tip critical elections. So encouraging to see this reform coming out of the Biden administration. But of course, you have to see how it really gets put into practice to know if it will, what type of impact it'll have. Last two things I want to talk about is turning our attention from the national back down to the states. You all know that I've been talking a lot about kind of state voter suppression and voter expansion of what it looks like. Well, Michigan is a really interesting moment right now where we've actually got dueling ballot measures in one of the most important battleground states in the country. On Friday, the Secure Michigan Vote Coalition, a very conservative coalition, submitted just over 500 signatures for its ballot measure, well past the deadline to get their ballot measure on the ballot in November. And that's because they were never aiming to actually put their ballot measure on the ballot. They were actually using a loophole in Michigan law that allows you to collect signatures for a ballot measure, and then the state legislature can adopt that ballot measure and the governor cannot veto it. So it's a way to circumvent the gubernatorial veto. And right now, Republicans control the legislature, but there's a Democratic governor. This proposal would require IDs for both in-person and absentee ballot applications. It would eliminate the possibility to sign a legal affidavit if you don't have an ID. It would prohibit sending out absentee ballot applications if they weren't asked for. So the Secretary of State sent them to everybody. That would not be allowed anymore. It would ban outside funding for elections and even require a partial social security number from everyone to register to vote. Basically, what Nancy Wang, who's the director of Voters Not Politicians, called it's a package of voter suppression bills disguised as a citizen's initiative. And Nancy's been really involved because Voters Not Politicians has been part of a second ballot measure that promote the vote coalition. They submitted over 670,000, 150,000 more signatures than the conservative ballot measure to put a constitutional amendment on the ballot in November. So if the constitutional amendment in November gets passed, it actually overrides 
the conservative measure, and it would expand access to the right to vote. It would create nine days of early in-person voting. It would require a drop box in every municipality. So some really significant and constitutional changes to the voting process. So these measures really matter because who can get to vote and how easy or how hard it is can have real impacts on the outcomes of elections, particularly in a place like Michigan that is so closely balanced. So a dueling set of ballot measures and attempts to circumvent the kind of will of the people by using this loophole something to keep our eyes on in Michigan and certainly going to impact what happens over the next few months. Last thing I want to talk about, we are back in primary season after the quiet of July. Today we've got primaries going in Arizona, Missouri, Washington, Michigan, and Kansas. Plus Tennessee goes on Thursday because Tennessee is the only one in the country that goes on Thursdays. Hawaii goes on Sundays. But the real things to watch right now are happening this week on Tuesday. Three things I would note in particular. In Kansas, the value them both amendment is the first abortion-related ballot measure post the overturn of Roe v. Wade. If it's passed, it would revise the state constitution to declare that there is no right to abortion. That would give the Republican legislature the all clear to ban abortion in Kansas. And right now, every state around Kansas has an abortion ban. So it, Kansas is becoming more critical for people as a place to go. What's unusual is that it's on a primary election rather than a general election. That's what makes it the first time abortion is on the ballot. And it's been really fiercely fought. You would expect in a conservative state like Kansas that it might be really going for passage, but its polls are showing a close race, so everyone's going to watch what happens. Also today, three Republican representatives in Washington, two in Washington, one in Michigan, who voted to impeach Trump are going to learn whether they've retained enough support from Republican voters to make it to the general election. Really the biggest kind of test of anti-Trumpism in the Republican primary to date. So remains to be seen. And then last, when we look down to Arizona and Missouri, you've got two open and very uncertain Republican primaries for Senate. You could have two very conservative wins, which might make an opportunity for kind of a Democratic hold in Arizona and maybe even a Democratic pickup in Missouri, although that would be a heavy lift. You also see in Arizona election deniers who are likely to odds on to win the Republican primaries for key statewide offices in Arizona. And so again, putting Arizona, another battleground state, in a really underneath the microscope where if you see proponents of the big lie as the Republican candidates for higher office, will Democrats be able to hold or win those offices or will you see an entire state uh, leadership pivot to an even more conservative stance, something really to look at. And over in Missouri in particular, it's been interesting because on the Senate side, former Governor Eric Greitens is the, has been accused of abuse and blackmail by his ex-wife and by the woman he was having an affair with. But it's a really competitive field because everyone else hasn't landed on which other candidate. There's uh, five other serious candidates. And actually Trump yesterday tweeted out that Eric has my complete and total endorsement, but conveniently doesn't specify which Eric he meant, the former governor or current Attorney General Eric Schmidt, one of his leading contenders. Basically, Trump hedging his bets and trying to undermine Vicki Hartzler, who's the third probably strongest candidate, and she's refused to disavow her condemnation of uh, Trump's behavior on January 6th. So all of this back and forth jockeying within the Republican primaries around how th and understanding the hold of Trump and Trumpism and the big lie on the Republican Party, something to watch for today.
So that's all for this week's review of developments in American democracy, back watching the primaries, back looking at policy change, back understanding the latest changes around state voter suppression or voter enfranchisement. I'm Jason Franklin, and I look forward to talking with you again next week as we look at more developments in American democracy here at 10 Minutes on Democracy. Take care. Bye-bye.